Welcome to the Open Source Startup Podcast. I'm one of your co-hosts, Robbie from Cowboy Ventures, and I'm joined by Tim from Essence VC. And we are super excited today to have Avi Press here, who is the founder and CEO of a company called Scarf, which we'll learn much more about. But at the highest level, what Scarf is, is a platform instead of tools for open source companies to measure and manage their open source communities. And there are parts of Scarf itself that are open source as well. So welcome, Abby. Thanks for having me. Excited to be here. Awesome. So I started with a very light overview of what Scarf is, but maybe if you want to jump into a more detailed explanation of how it started and what it actually is. You can think of Scarf as a platform for open source software distribution, analytics, and commercialization. It got started really out of pain points that I've had myself on kind of on both sides of the open source equation. A while back, I was an engineer at Pandora, where we used a lot of open source dependencies up and down our stack. And there were times where it hit a bug in some open source library and two weeks of my life gone, you know, towards fixing something where if we had just had a relationship with the maintainers, probably could have been done in a couple hours. And so I think my experience on the industry consumer and user of open source, like really kind of got me thinking a lot about how companies and the maintainers they rely on could be working more closely together. But then fast forward a couple of years, I am an early engineer at a very small startup, like a five person company and building a lot of dev tools for myself and for my team. And this is all in my spare time. And some of those tools started to be very integral to that company, as well as when I open source them, other companies too. And quickly, I find myself with a growing project and nights and weekends are now being spent maintaining these projects because people who seem to be at very big companies are coming to me and saying, hey, this is broken. Please fix it. Hey, this is also broken and it is affecting me in all of these ways. You need to fix it, you know, as if they were paying customers, but they were not. And so that got me thinking, you know, well, if I'm providing value to a big company, I should probably explore if I can start a business around these tools. But what I found was, is that that was extraordinarily difficult, as I think a lot of people listening might know firsthand that there's a lot of difficulties here. And I pinpointed the main problems that I had. One was just a real lack of data because it's distributing on package managers and I had a total download count, but nothing else to work with. And so I couldn't even assess, should I go spend a bunch of time doing this or not? That's a really important question to answer. And I could not do it in any more of a way besides I think maybe like, I guess, <laughs> but really not much more than that. But even if I knew, and even if I had, you know, an exact notion of who was using it, how they were relying on it and what they needed, even if I went to them, what would I do? Like, I'm not a lawyer. I don't know the right way to broker an enterprise, you know, software support contract. The package managers I was distributing on couldn't sell a license or federate access to custom features or do any of those things. So what was I to do? Like I had nothing. And so those issues on kind of both sides of this equation of like, we have these maintainers with companies relying on them very heavily, but the two sides are not connected in any way that is, well, really as productive as it could be. That is what got me started on Scarf. And so Scarf is really all about trying to connect open source maintainers to the companies that rely on them and help them build scalable, sustainable businesses around their work and help the businesses on the other side leverage those dependencies as effectively as possible. Open source has been a very long history. We've definitely seen a lot evolution of the whole movement and we, we interview so many companies and whenever we're talking about like people are, are running in the dark and don't have much data that's by design sometimes right yeah and so yeah. we definitely we're going to touch on a lot of these sort of topics in this episode we're, we're definitely excited to go for so let's maybe start from the sort of like the initial part where like what are you trying to surface you know what do you think open source maintainers should know about and what are the ways that you're trying to get into this space 
because it sounds like you have a couple products actually. And tell us where are the choices of these products in the first place, and how how do these work together to get a picture yeah. of consumers? Okay, so there are a couple parts to that. So let me start with like, what kinds of things might you want to know? I think a very basic question that most open source companies can't answer: How many unique users did you have this month? Most open source projects simply are unable to answer that question. And it's a very basic question. But you know, there's a whole lot of other things like what platforms are my users on? Are they on Windows or Mac or Linux? If I get a bug for Windows, should I actually address it, or should I spend my time on more important things? Where in the world are my users? The subset of people who actually come to you and open an issue on GitHub are a very small percentage of your actual user base, and so if you're just using GitHub, you're actually missing most of the picture. Beyond from that, of like what companies are downloading, I talked to so many developers at the beginning of Scarf, and that was one thing that kept coming up. I don't know which companies actually use this. I don't know how they use it, and without the answer to those questions, it's really, really difficult to do anything downstream from that. And so. To address these set of questions, the first thing that we built that really took off was a library called Scarf.js, and the idea is that if you are an npm package maintainer, you simply add Scarf as a dependency. Anytime your package gets installed, Scarf gets installed, and it sends off a quick post-installation hook, sends some data to us, and then we can surface that exact data—the platforms, the locations, and the companies behind these downloads. The unique. Downloads versus the raw total downloads. But then, you know, as time continued and we, you know, spoke a lot with the end user community, we started to hone in on other strategies for analytics that were definitely more in line with end user expectations as well as just generally more powerful. And so that then led us to a tool called Documentation Insights, which essentially pixel tracking for open source docs. So whether your README is rendered on Docker Hub or NPM or your website or in the editor of a developer. You can now start to track some of that data as they start to discover your project, learn more about it, get stuck, deploy, you know, whatever they're doing. You can start to have some visibility, but then ultimately they're going to download you know, some artifact somewhere. Maybe that's a Docker container. Maybe that's an executable file. Maybe it's a Python package. And that leads us to our more flagship product, which is uh, called Scarf Gateway. And Scarf Gateway is a redirect and proxy layer that sits in front of arbitrary package registries, artifact repositories, or just URLs. It works seamlessly with existing package managers. You can say pip install or Docker pull through Scarf Gateway without actually publishing any software on our platform. You just have to tell us, "Hey, this container is on Docker Hub. We give you a new URL that you can distribute through, or connect your own domain." And you know, you're off to the races. You see every pull and download invocation, etc., that's associated with that software. These pieces fit together very powerfully because now. We can actually start to track a user's journey across the lifetime, their journey with your software. So you can see, okay, someone from Apple came and they looked at our Docker Hub. Then they looked at a specific page within the documentation, and then they pulled down the container at this version from this location with this container runtime on this cloud environment. The ability to start to correlate those things and actually have visibility in that full spectrum. Is totally, totally new today. You don't have that from the documentation side. You certainly don't have it from the registry side, and you, of course, can't correlate those events across the lifetime. And so, all of these things that have been all the analytics approaches that are basically table stakes in the SaaS world, like maybe, for instance, making a user funnel, is now fairly achievable here. You can say, oh, you know, someone came in, they read the docs, we never saw them again. Someone came in, they downloaded the container. 
nothing after that. And you can start to like build a customer journey, a user journey, and get a better understanding of your users with Scarf. And so we're trying to kind of build all the pieces for software distribution such that it's observable, such that the maintainers have leverage over it, and ultimately so the maintainers can be more connected to their users and their customers. So one of my biggest takeaways from Tim and I running this podcast is that no open source companies are exactly run the same. And we talk to a lot of companies that will have open source components to them, but they're not truly open source the same way other companies are. Or it's a company built on top of an open source project that is run by maybe not the founders of that company. It's run by other people. So how do you know who could use Scarf? Because if I'm running a company based on an open source project that I am not the initial founder or owner of. Can I still track data from that project or is that not a fit? That's a great question. And this really illustrates the difference between the code and the distribution channels for that code. You could, for instance, a very big user of Scarf is a group called Linux Server. They repackage a bunch of, they just repackage lots of different software and make them as very easy to run Docker containers. And so they have a lot of stats that they're collecting about the usage of this software that they don't actually build themselves, but they have built a huge audience for the distribution of this software. And so for companies that may not the owners of the open source that they're building around, they still likely are intimately tied to the distribution of that software. And so, you know, I think we see this as both a way for distribution channels to have more ownership and leverage from the companies building around them, but also, I think really crucially, highlighting the fact that the ideals that we talk about within open source, which we really only talk about code, should actually really be extending to data about that code. Just as an example, like you have we see a lot of companies that are trying to have better understanding of their open source usage. A lot of them are selling to the same companies and the same people. And if package A and package B are used very often together, and we know, okay, this new company started using package A, package B is a really, really good thing to recommend to them. But if these two projects are not sharing data with each other, there's no way to really, like, well, A, if they're not collecting the data in the first place, they certainly can't share it. But once that data is actually accessible to them, there's a lot of collaboration opportunities here, a lot of partnership opportunities between commercial open source companies. The point that I'm trying to make here is that the collaboration between stakeholders within open source, we are just scratching the surface on the different ways that collaboration can take place. It's much more than just commits. It's much more than just merging pull requests and commenting on issues. There's a whole other ecosystem here around kind of the flourishing businesses that are being built around open source because there's so much value there. If we arm the projects at the source with this data, arm the people who have stake in that project with this data, there's a lot of a lot of potential in there to make just a more sustainable open source ecosystem and to have a very thriving business community around it. It's very clear how this benefits companies that are tied to open source projects. But how about the users? How also could it, like the pro-con for them, because successful open source companies generally have a really community-centric orientation to them. And so I imagine that this is kind of one of the first concerns that comes up is how is this going to impact the individuals in the community? One of the high-level things I would say is that better informed maintainers are going to build better software. 
Yeah, if you can look at your user base and like ask hard quantitative questions, you can act in a quantitative way that best serves your users. So having maintainers A that can make more data-driven decisions about their user base are going to deliver better products to the end user. They're going to have a better understanding of that user base. So for instance, like if you're hosting an event, what time zone should you cater to most? I mean, how are you you can put out a survey. That's great. But you're only getting, you know, the most people, the people who are vocal and they're going to, you know, answer that survey. But like, we can do better than that. So I would say like the overall thing here is that this usage data helps maintainers do their job more effectively and empowering maintainers means better software for end users. The other thing that I would also really want to underline here is being an open source maintainer is super exhausting because you are always being very reactive to the GitHub issues. Like I personally got to a point where like every time I saw a GitHub notification, like I would get like that tinge of anxiety, like, oh, what did I break this time? Like what has gone wrong? And there was never a feeling like you could ever get out in front of it because the only thing that you have to work with is the issues of people on GitHub who have already encountered the problem. It's already too late. And so by empowering maintainers with data so they can be more quantitative, they also means that you can make them more proactive, more actively prioritize things that impact the most users and don't spend time on the things that impact just a couple users. Less burnt out maintainers means better quality work, more data informed maintainers means better prioritized work. All these things lead to better software for the end user. Yeah, it's really funny where, you know, I've been a maintainer for open source for quite some time and you never really know, right, of what actually is happening in Jira or whatever places people report or GitHub. But also there's a flip side to it is like people actually sometimes don't want to know. <laughs> right? Because like it's not everybody's full-time job to fix everyone's priority issues. And there's a lot of issues that will come up with as an open source project. Maybe things are early or it's not covering all cases. I guess wondering what are the challenges of doing this? Because it's obviously not every open source maintainer or user are probably going to all embrace that you're tracking everything that we're doing and tracking everything we're using. What has been the reception so far? And what has you learned from this to continue to push down, like, this is this is the new way everybody should embrace doing open source? We could probably do several episodes just on this question. But to give kind of the most high-level points here, some of them come with just respect to data privacy. So one, you know, the, the concern of, like, you're tracking me. Why are you doing this? There's a few things that I would say. So one is that, the registries are already tracking you. NPM already has all this data about you. GitHub already has all this data about you. Docker Hub does. So the data exists already, just the maintainers don't have it. And that's fundamentally bad. They're the ones who we should most want to have it. Registries and other services second. But I think you know the other thing, and this really is something that we learned with Scarf.js, is that to a lot of end users, yes, the data you are collecting matters, but how it is being collected perhaps matters even more. It's about fitting into people's expectations. People did not expect that Scarf would be tracking them when they ran npm install. People do, however, expect when I visit a web page, I'm probably going to be tracked by that website. And so we actually asked people who were most critical of Scarf.js, what about pixel tracking on, on websites? Like, what is it about that that you're more okay with? I said, yeah, I mean, I, that's, I expect this. It's okay. And so we went and we immediately built documentation insights. And you know, a lot of our users are, are benefiting from that. I would say the other challenge, which, so like, you know, some of those challenges are a lot more social and just kind of fitting in with the way that people think about this from the end user perspective. But another one has been technological challenges, which is GDPR. We collect usage information of software. 
metadata like company and location is all IP address based. So we are, there is a handling of personally identifiable data there. And here we did some of the really hard work of making sure that as soon as IP address metadata is collected, we actually scrub the IP address itself from our system. And so if SCARF was to get hacked today, you wouldn't find any personally identifiable information in the database because it's not there. And so if you were going to try to build SCARF yourself for your own company, you would have to deal with these things or you would have a GDPR print and liability. And so we kind of handle all that complexity for you. And let me tell you, it is not trivial to do. It's a lot of work, but these are the things that you got to do if you want to run a service like this. So we <laughs> have handled that. So I would say, you know, the high level things here are A, user expectations and preferences when it comes to analytics and navigating those. And what we've shown is that it is indeed possible to do this in a way that people are okay with. It just takes a lot of trying and failing to get there. Now that we have, we're off to the races and things are growing and things are great. You know, the other thing is just all the technological challenges and roadblocks to actually building and scaling such a service in a way that respects all the different regulations that you may deal with around the world. You bring up a lot of interesting points, especially around expectation setting. So I imagine that there is a component of SCARF that is educating customers and users because this is such a new capability. So what are the things when you're onboarding a new customer that you tell them to do as best practices so that their communities don't freak out if they start tracking and they have like churn issues or just community blowback later on? That is a great question. I think, you know, this is candidly something that we can be doing better and always should be doing better. The messaging to users has been a very like, Tricky thing to get right. So I think like what has not worked well is putting it up and saying, hey, we're, you know, here's what we are tracking. Even Scarf.js, very, very like clear with the user. Hey, here's what library is doing the tracking. Here's what data is getting sent. Here are two different ways you can opt out of it. Here's where you can learn more. Didn't matter. What did matter is the reasoning for doing it, the mechanism by which you do it, and how that's communicated. And so for Scarf Gateway, what has actually really been a lot more successful with end users, which Rocket Chat is a good example, they're using Scarf Gateway for their Docker containers. And they were very focused on ensuring that the user always had the most up-to-date software. They're on Docker Hub today, but you know, Docker Hub has rate limits now, and that impacts people in a lot of different ways. And so if they move over to GitHub Container, to you know, GCR, GHCR, any of these other registries, you don't want all of your current users to stop getting updates. And so the messaging there was like, this is a step that we are taking to ensure that this distribution channel is always up to date and is always ours. It is the authentic, like you are getting it from us, not from you know, whatever platform we happen to have to use at the time. And keeping it about kind of the, yeah, the, the authenticity and the ownership of that distribution channel has been a lot more effective than talking about all the benefits of like what that actually entails to the user. Because ultimately, like the end user doesn't really care about you, the maintainer, having better data. It doesn't impact them directly enough, actively enough, like immediately enough. But what does is, yeah, you know, you may stop getting updates if you don't pull it from here. And so that has been helpful overall. You know, I think the other thing that has been successful for some communities is sharing that data with community and like sh like making it being open about it and saying, you know, we've collected this and here's all the interesting things we've learned. And so to go back to the Linux server example, they published a blog post about all the stuff they've learned from their SCARF data, which, you know, for example, I think what was most interesting to them is like they had one container that had, I don't know, it was like hundreds of thousands of downloads per month. 
like 90% of it was coming from two people. And you would never know that unless you had access to that data. And I think there's a lot of people, a lot of projects that have a very, very incorrect sense of their traction because downloads, you know, you might just have a thrashing CI pipeline that's pulling your container, your package every minute. You'll never know. And the registry will never tell you that, but it should, and it will over time when this becomes a lot more of a normal thing to do. And so how do you get people to start using Scarf, typically speaking? Do you encourage them to start with a pixel tracker, then move into like the gateway or vice versa? Because sounds like, you know, you could track various things, but I guess the magic when it comes to we actually implement them all so that it actually shows up as a funnel and you can start doing a lot more. I'm just curious, like, where do you actually start pushing typically? And do they pick up different things for different needs? Yeah, it does depend. We do see different things from different spots because like, you know, sometimes I'll have like a DevRel person come to us and they want to learn more about the community and like they can easily add a pixel to the docs and that kind of just gets them in the door and kind of lets the appetite for this kind of data. Other times we have companies that come to us with a very specific objective. They're like, we really want to get a good sense of our unique users monthly. And then you like need to use Scarf Gateway for us to really accurately answer that. But one tends to be a gateway drug for the other, whichever way you come in. (laughs) Overall, we tend to push Scarf Gateway more because that gets you a much richer sense of what's going on than documentation does. But currently today, Scarf Gateway only supports a small subset of all the different languages and packaging ecosystems that we will ultimately. And so sometimes people come to us and we just like don't have a tool specifically for their language yet. And in that case, you know, we'll just give them, we'll put the pixels in their hands and, and uh, you know, keep them posted for when we have a tool for them. So yeah. are you basically moving towards more like a package manager and documentation track, like sort of like the remote side, and you're not going to do any more Scarf.js equivalent to, you know, Golang, Python and other things? Or, because I imagine there's trade-offs here, right? You can, even though you get the downloads, you may actually get the usage of actual the packages, and I'm just curious, which way are you going towards? Are you completely no longer tracking client side or user side? Or those are actually still something you guys are looking to do in the future? So even that story is a little bit more complicated than it might seem at first. Because, for instance, in the world of Docker, we actually do see every time the container is invoked. Because every time the client will actually check if it's up to date. So there's like small exceptions to that narrative. But to answer more in the spirit of what your question was, we are starting with the registry and sitting in between the user and the registry. And the reason that we are starting there is because for the exact thing that we learned with Scarf.js, fitting into the existing stack and augmenting it is a lot easier for people to adopt. It's a lot easier for the end user to be comfortable with than it is to start to instrument stuff into the code itself. So the current strategy is just expand Scarf Gateway and so that any project can use it in front of wherever their artifacts are hosted. However, the client side story here about like, you know, maybe we'll sit into the package manager, we'll have more SDKs at the language level, we'll expand into that direction as well. But unfortunately, in kind of the current landscape, phoning home is just not popular. More established projects are doing it successfully anyway, but even the really successful ones have run into pushback and they do it despite the pushback. And so this is kind of a piece of our, like the social problem here. Like we gotta just normalize that analytics are actually a thing to be embraced and supported. And over time, we can kind of very carefully expand how that actually takes place. But right now the registry seems to be the very good place for it. The data is already out there. We're just making sure that enough of it is covered, that it's open to everybody. 
So from Scarf's customer's perspective, there's a ton of benefits that I'm sure they're able to get from having this data, both from a go-to-market standpoint, but then also understanding product roadmap, understanding usage, types of companies using the project. How does a business model for Scarf work? Like, how do you, who do you, who's this even fall under as far as like budget? And how do you describe the value? Because there's just so many different ways you can cut that. Yeah, this is something that is going to evolve over time. Currently, Scarf's customers are the commercial open source businesses that use us, that want more tooling on top of the data that we provide. So currently today, for free, we'll tell you every company that is pulling down your software, viewing docs, et cetera. We can also provide you concrete leads based on criteria that you give us. Of like, someone pulls down your container, you want to talk to the DevOps managers and the CTO, and we can, you know, we can provide that information. And so there's like a SaaS play on that side that's in the more immediate term that we're doing today. But in the long run, the idea is really to be the platform, be the foundation that these companies are using to commercialize with their customers. And then so we're much more akin to a Stripe or a Shopify where we're giving you everything that you need. Like you write the code and you build a great open source product and we give you everything that you need from there to take that project and turn it into a successful business. And that business model there is much more of like a rev share with like an alignment with the creators and the people building. And to make them more successful, we take a cut of whatever value providing there. And so this is like a very big picture and a very long-term strategy that kind of has multiple segments of personas and value propositions. But really where this gets very interesting is when we can create a world where the success of a business around open source is directly related to just how useful that open source is and how valuable, how much value it provides, not the other things where, you know, uh, people just kind of sometimes just don't manage to, to get the business off the ground despite having a very, very valuable project under the hood. As you know, like open source has basically like three modes, right? One is a hobby, part-time, I do it just really for fun and transition sometimes into like a full-time, but like just one or two person full-time and taking Patreons or like GitHub donations. Then of course, then all the open source companies we interview, right? Which is like aiming to become like a very large business. And I just wondered, do you see Scarf really fitting into just the third bucket, which is like the large businesses on open source? Or you actually think like anybody that wants to be selling open source, either support or license or anything like that nature, should use Scarf as well. And do you differ from between those personas at all from a product point of view? Or? We do differ on those personas a bit in terms of how we think about onboarding and marketing, but Scarf should be used by every open source project, no matter what you're trying to do with it. It is useful to organizations that have absolutely no commercial ambitions whatsoever. People want to see the impact of their work. And there's no better way than to see it. And so I'll see tweets from people saying like, oh, NASA's using my library. I had no idea. And I love that. Even from people who are not trying to make a single dollar from NASA, but just think it's cool that their stuff is going to space or doing, you know, whatever it might be doing. It also whets the appetite sometimes to see like, oh, 30 companies used the package this week for the first time. Like maybe there is a business here. And you know, drives people to maybe seek out the commercial success that they may not have realized that they had the opportunity for. And of course, the established cost company very much in our wheelhouse in terms of who we cater to. But I want to see more of those. There's a lot more cost businesses that should exist that don't. And many that do but aren't successful that should be. 
And so I think what we're trying to build is really a way for all open source projects to just be more successful, whatever that means to them. And, you know, I think in a lot of cases that is going to be commercial success, but a lot of times it won't be. So conceptually, this is such a new thing and a very different take on open source as an ethos in general. And I know there's been some controversy around just whether or not this information should be tracked. What do you kind of say to counter that to like the general population? Because we've talked about for the specific personas, like the large companies trying to build on top of open source or some individual contributors. But what are the big main messages to folks who are just anti this from an ethos perspective? The main thing I would say is that this stuff is already being tracked, like the notion that like we shouldn't start to do this is kind of cutting up the wrong, it's the wrong way to think about it because lots of companies, Microsoft and GitHub, they already have this data. The question is not, should we collect it? It's who should have it? And I think most people in the open source space would probably get behind the fact that if this data exists, it should be with the maintainers. It should be with the people who build it. And that's the world that we're trying to create with this. And I think the other thing that I would say here at a very high level is that it's not the case that you need to be storing a lot of personally identifiable information to do this to be useful. There's so much information in data that is just not even tied to a single person that can make people's lives easier and then make your software better. And you know, I think the last thing that I would say is like, we live in a world where this is happening in much, much more pervasive manners in other contexts that we don't even blink at. And we should not hold open source maintainers to a higher standard than we do the companies that we actually interact with every day. It's totally backwards that you would say, oh yeah, Google, you can collect all that information. But you, the indie developer, like absolutely not. You should never have a portion of that information. I think you gave a really good answer to it around just the types of companies that are tracking stuff now. And I think it's it's maybe more of a marketing in a sense thing where people think differently about open source, but they shouldn't because there are centralized organizations that own a lot of that data already. Right. Yeah. They already own it and we're trying to give maintainers access to it. But also the fact that we are currently in a state where banks and hospitals and all these like very mission critical places are relying on the software and the people building it have no idea. And that's when you think about like the history of open source, like that maybe we didn't really predict early on just how successful open source was going to be and just how much of a problem, a practical problem, some of these ideals actually pose to the long-term sustainability of open source. And so we really see this as a pragmatic response to some of the problems that we are starting to see where we just have all these dependencies that are out there and all these people are relying on it, but we just have no idea. And the dependency tree just gets more and more complex over time. So I actually want to ask about another product of yours. So, so far we've been talking just more about the maintainer side and getting data. And there's another product, which is like the actually open source support side. So which is actually more the user side, right? <laughs> Tell us more about what that is, because it sounds like it's sort of a facilitating agreement between user and developer. Do you have any people using or examples you can tell like how they able to get a response SLA and support individual open source maintainers from that? I think the high level idea here is that it is very common for a business to have some things that they just need from the maintainer. Maybe they need them to merge pull requests in a timely fashion, or maybe they need to make sure that there are consistent updates against some external API or a number of different things. Really what the company needs is they need accountability. 
they need reliability, and they need predictability. If a bug gets opened, what's going to happen? What's the process? When can this other team expect the fix? And all those things require expectations of the maintainers, and a lot of maintainers are absolutely happy to oblige if they're getting paid fairly. Problem is, how do you do that? If you're trying to broker that today, you may. And indeed, I was actually just asked by a maintainer who we were trying to purchase support from, oh yeah, just you know, sponsor me on GitHub and I'll do those things. That's not going to work for most businesses. I can't just throw money over the wall, mark as a donation on our books, and just hope you do what we asked for. I need a contract. But how do I broker that contract? How do we make it in a way such that the maintainer is actually covered here because they probably don't have a lawyer to go to? Uh, or maybe they do, but it's really expensive. It might cost more than they're going to make from the deal. And so the idea is we're trying to build all the pieces of what's required so that a company can actually go to a maintainer or a project and say, hey, we need these things and we're happy to pay for it. How do we make this happen? And to really have a way that a company can purchase that accountability and that predictability, because that's valuable. It's really valuable. But we don't talk about that because that's kind of you know, often separate of the of the source code itself. And yeah, you know, I think if there's any takeaways from this whole conversation, there's a lot more in play here than just the code. There's a lot more value here than just the code. And so by being explicit about what the economics of those things are, what the problems there are, we can build tooling around it, we can empower a lot of projects with it. So obviously, when you talk like what is actually more than just a code, there's so much more than just a code right, for open source projects. Are you going down into like the community engagements, like you know, Slack and forums and the Apache Jira's kind of thing too as well? Or how far are you going with this non-code analytics in the open source community? We're really focused on distribution. I would say, and usage of, of the software itself. We are not trying to say, do what Orbit is doing, for instance, with like community metrics and stuff. They have, you know, they have their very good niche on the data that they're collecting. We may integrate with Orbit at some point down the road, potentially, and you could have your scarf, you know, your, your usage data and your community data alongside of each other. Because at the end of the day, your software users are leads for your community. Like they're part of the community, they're just like a silent part of the community. And so we see this as kind of the underpinnings for how the software itself gets shipped around. We may one day have some tools for, for community engagement as well, but it's not something we're currently trying to tackle. And given that there's multiple great companies doing this now, it's not really something that we're looking at at the moment. But overall, I am a big believer in you know, collaboration and partnerships. And so we will definitely build some stuff with the companies that are doing this. So this is interesting because we almost always talk to founders of open source-based companies, but all of those folks that we talk to are actually potential customers or users of Scarf. So you're kind of in a unique position where you can kind of give us your insight on selling to these types of companies. What have you learned that's unique about selling to open source-based companies? Like ways that they like to be sold to or just things that you have to be careful of because it is such a different business in that it's so community-centric while also trying to have a monetization angle. A lot of the things about selling to open source companies are really in common with just selling to developers in general because you know ultimately the open source space is a bunch of developers. And one thing that we learned very early on is that it's not a good idea to try to just up and replace an existing workflow. It's much better to augment it and to try to slowly replace it over time as you continually add more and more pieces. I think a focus on just the, the concrete problems that you're solving for someone today 
and you know, making it really, really easy to make that happen is kind of the key thing. What was unsuccessful for us was, oh, here, you should use this whole package manager because it's great and get all of your users to use that package manager and you'll have all this information. That did not work. But what did work is, here, just use this one tool. That's all you have to do. It solves this specific problem. And that has worked a lot better. And so, yeah, overall, I would say, you know, just the mindset of selling to developers instead of selling to your average other business person, very different. The other thing also is just the way that any given change that a company might adopt, you have to think about how that's going to be messaged to their users in a way that you don't have to do with other companies. And so thinking through the messaging of a given change, I think is something that if you're going to try to sell to an open source company, you need to help them explain that to their users in general. I'm sure there's you know a bunch of exceptions to that if it's like an internal tool or something. But by and large, if you're going to be doing something that like impacts their users, like it's a very, very delicate thing that has to be done extremely carefully. So usually the last question we ask founders running open source companies and what they learned starting the open source community. But we'll flip it around for you because given your target customers are open source projects and companies themselves, what have you seen are like things that really good companies or projects do that you think everyone else should know, especially since you've seen the data as well. Just wondering if you've seen any best practices overall, like, hey, I think these are things people don't know as much of when it comes to running open source communities, and this should actually follow this, this sort of methodology? I think the best companies are very intentional about what questions they want to answer and then make sure that they put the instrumentation in place that helps them do it. Yeah, I think the companies that have come to us and have been most effective with our tools, they've had like very specific problems to solve and the data helps them do that, but then also opens up a whole you know, new set of opportunities there. I think a lot of the best founders I know are just like very curious people, whether it's tinkering with stuff, learning how things work, or trying to explain things that are surprising to them. And so some of the really impressive projects and teams that are using us, like will really dive very deep into their data and like look for things that are surprising and dig into why. And often there's a lot of really interesting learnings uh, from that that, you know, I think would be just totally inaccessible if you weren't having that curiosity in the first place, I think. Well, this is fantastic. Thank you so much for doing this with us. Yeah, thanks for having me.